Hey, this is Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. This is Behind the Billions for episode 507, the mid-season finale. Our special guest, and hang in because our special guest is David Costable Wags, who directed this episode and kicked, didn't he kick ass, Dave? He really did. I mean, we could circle back to him, you know, in the directing portion, but just right off the top, he showed up so prepared. He had just mapped it all out and sort of left nothing to chance, which is a great way to go about it, especially when you're doing it for the first time. And it's the third episode that the two of us wrote with Emily Hornsby, who uh, just contributed a tremendous amount to the episode and to the entire season. And so one more shout out to Hornsby, who started as our assistant and worked her way up and is now just a major writer on the show. Just, just, And is going to have a long career and hopefully someday will hire us. <laughs> I agree with all that, especially the last part. And she's such a great organizer, you know, like when ideas are flying around, it's like they all get apprehended by her and sort of slammed into shape in a way that we can use it and we don't lose it. And then when we divide up the scene, she's totally proficient at executing her scenes. She really, I mean, you know, for somebody at the beginning of their writing career, she just really needs so little rewriting compared it's to true. even seasoned players. She's an and excellent writer. Just a pleasure to work with all around. Yep, it's true. So Hornsby, uh, I'm sure you've heard enough of our voices that you're not actually listening to our podcast. But if you are, <laughs> great work. I mean, she's very thorough, but that would be super thorough. And I hope she's doing something else with her weekend or something. I guess uh, Rowan or someone else who's friends with Emily who does listen, just be like, oh yeah, the guy said you're great. Don't make her listen. <laughs> she really wants to. Uh, so uh, Dave, where should, we, where should we start talking about this episode? Uh, you know, I think that we should start talking about sort of one of these central ideas in the episode, which is something that we have wanted to delve into for a while. The idea of these high-end mental performance enhancing drugs that the pharmaceutical industry is very busy creating. Your, your pro vigils, your new vigils, we've, we've sort of had a tiny bit of field experience. We've seen other people that swore oh, that yeah. uh, that swore to them, swore by them. We've also seen and felt the downside of all that energy and focus. That the down that comes after the high up. Well, yeah, as you, the warping as, effect that it can have long term over somebody's sort of sense of story. Well, also when group. Well, that's for when groupthink comes into play. Uh, and everybody's engaging in that behavior, it can, the whole thing could just start moving. Uh, Absolutely. And then there's sort of no, um, random outside check on it as the episode portrays, you know, Taylor's sort of off premises, the whole episode and walks back into it, uh, you know, sort of as sober, if you will, and understands that there's been like a major compass shift over the course of the day. And then, you know, this didn't feel that far from us. There's a huge connection in all this. We called the episode The Limitless Shit because we thought that it was a hilarious reference in the way that you'd refer to this stuff. But it's a reference to the Neil Berger movie, Limitless. And of course, Neil Berger is complete Billions family because he directed the pilot and another couple episodes. And you know, we were able even to tap him as a resource. I remember during um, pre-production on the episode, yeah. we grabbed the cinematographer, Giorgio and, and Costable, and we all had a meeting and talked about filmic ways that we could express, you know, the feeling of what was going on with these people. And, you know, we, we sort of paid visual homage in a, in a slight way to the way he'd done it. And he shared other thoughts about how he came to it that I know helped Costable immensely. And of course, Neil's are, you know, you and I saw uh, an early screening of Limitless because Neil's been our, our friend since 1999 wow. uh, and or 1998, maybe actually. And, um, you know, we worked on movies together and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, it was great to get to shout him out, um, shout him out in that way. And. You know, this also is an episode where Chuck is finding himself in uh, a tight spot. 
and is making making moves. Um, and it's the beginning of really understanding how the story is going to turn and involve Chuck, Axe, and Prince in some way as the season pushes towards uh, towards its end. Yeah, and another matter that that Chuck was wrestling with in here was, um, you know, this this kidney problem that he's trying to solve for senior. And that brought on a lot of research. I remember um, at the time this was being discussed in sort of loose terms, Ben Mesrick was still in the room and his brother is like a top transplant surgeon. And people were getting him on the phone and asking questions. And we were getting these incomprehensible, sophisticated medical answers, but we were able to distill it down finally into, um, you know, this, this kidney donation subplot in the end. And then the fact that, that this episode, uh, kind of works as a mid season finale is just a great lucky break. I think Levine, because yeah, we, we, you know, it just so happens that it builds to a, a, a real climax point. Yeah. I mean, Metallica often like these, playing. these, these mid season episodes are, I wouldn't say episodic because there's always these serialized elements in our show, but like, it could just be like things sort of, it could be like the middle stone in the little path that you're hopping down without an ending that's sort of substantial in a way. And it would have been really weird and unfortunate to have to break off for an unspecified period of time because of the pandemic with sort of um, a less crisp ending as this one worked out to have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's totally true. And, um, it, it feels to me, I mean, we had no idea when we were writing this episode, sort of what was coming. So it, it just feels like, um, a good break that, that that's the, you know, that that's the case. I will say we had to make it, if this segues into the script to screen thing, um, as a result of that, we made some changes in the way that we edited the episode. Yes, you mean, so this is the as, ten, as this, a result of uh, Seven becoming the, the mini finale, you're saying? So yeah, and the part of this, that's like a director's commentary of, uh, of a movie or something like, so for people who are interested in the, really interested in the process, we had a, a, a three scene, maybe a four scene runner involving um, a few of the characters that who weren't Axe or Chuck. Uh, at Axe Cap Capital characters. And it was very humorous. It was a comedic runner that kind of came off of the Mensa runner in the last episode, in episode 506. And as we cut the episode together, every time we went to that story, although it was entertaining, funny, and the performances, I mean, Kelly and Konkin are at the heart of that story, and they were both magnificent, Dollar Bill and Spiros. But it took the... Um, it was like raising, you know, you're not keeping your foot down on the, on the, on the gas. It, it, it was taking your foot off the gas and, and, and it just made the episode less tense and less exciting. And since the episode now had to serve as the finale for now, we couldn't afford that. And it broke our hearts because it was something we loved in the writer's room. Yeah. You know, it really lightened the proceedings, which was exactly what it was designed to do because often in the middle of the season, I, I mean, for us, you, it can't be too funny. I mean, we love the laughs that are coming out of this supposedly serious setting when these characters are showing their yeah, idiosyncrasies. We love, the stuff. Yep. we love it. But here it was just like, you know, the plot needed to drive towards this suddenly um, established finish line in a way. And that just made it seem like too lighthearted. So we had to do the hard thing of editing out the entire runner. And, you know, I guess there's a world and I like that you're being um, elliptical about it and not saying what it is because there's a world where it could come back and be in another episode. Maybe, maybe not, but you know, it was, it yeah, was a really funny that's idea. That's why I don't want to give it up. I don't want to yeah. give up the whole runner in case we decide that we can do it someday. Absolutely. Uh, and are there any other big sort of script to screen changes that you're aware of? I think that that was sort of like the major one. Yeah, as I always like to do that, what changed at the um, table read thing. So all the stuff between Scooter and Prince was rewritten after the table read. There, there, those scenes were a little bit um, 
pure business. And we, we, we realized that, uh, by Daniel Breaker is so great that we were just like, we have to keep people always ask, do you write to actors? It's like, by the time we were ready to do this episode, it was clear to us that we wanted Daniel Breaker to be a part of the show in a big way <laughs> when he's around. And so we wanted to really make sure that stuff was meaty between, uh, between Prince and Scooter. And I think we, by then we'd landed on this idea that fitting very much into the billions universe. Um, Prince is a guy who make, who's very conversant in movie references, but we just thought it would be entertaining that Scooter for all of his brilliance and, you know, comprehensive knowledge of every other topic just hadn't bothered watching a lot of movies. Yeah. And it works great. And, and Daniel plays that stuff so well. I, I love the idea that, you know, he, he knows the composer of every opera ever and could sing them and all that stuff, but uh, not and the he, movies. He, he basically knows exactly what everybody's saying when they reference a movie, but he just hasn't, you know, seen it yet. Supposedly. Yeah, he's been in this world so long that, 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 that he's had to become uh, knowledgeable enough without, without having seen it. What should we go to next? I mean, generally we, we go writers, we kind of covered, we kind of covered that cause it's us and Hornsby. Um, and we talked a little bit about Costable, you know, um, I guess, if somebody would see that a major cast member on a, on a show had directed an episode, they may think that it's just something that the person gets to raise their hand and ask for the chance to do, or that the executive producers come to that guy or woman and say like, Hey, would you like to? Um, but in this case, it was Costable who raised his hand several years ago and He'd never directed anything. He directed stage, but but never um, TV or films. Yeah. So, you know, we we have like a a deep belief in his competency. But we said, well, we're going to give you the answer that we give everybody basically who comes to the show to direct who hasn't really done it before. Like you have to shadow episodes, so you see the process. And we've talked about it how. You know, that means going to every meeting, every location scout, um, you know, being in everything that a, a director of an episode is doing, this shadow goes to and gets exposure to. Now, this was paired with Costables having to work his actor's hours, the early calls or the late nights. And then he would have to take off the WAGs garb and show up in the scouting van, you know, maybe six hours later, not getting his actor turnaround because he was in a different capacity all of a sudden. And it's not an easy thing to do. You know, it certainly would weed out somebody who, who sort of thinks they want to direct for the glory, but not the hard work part, but he did it. He, and, and then, you know, what did he do? Season three, he did an episode. And then season four, he came back and did another episode to yeah, sort he, of make he sure that he had two different, yeah, two different directors. And, and yeah, he did wonderfully well. And, and I think he did a, a great job in the episode and we'll, we'll keep our segment of this a little shorter than usual. Cause I think we should bring him in for like a longer time. You know, we should bring him in and have a real combo about the yeah, whole thing. Absolutely. So crew superstars, we, as we kind of come into this mini finale, we can't not single out two gentlemen that have been with the show since the pilot who are so important to billions being what it is. And that's George Patsos, the key grip and Jay Fortune, the gaffer. You want to tell everybody what those guys do? Well, yeah, nothing would be lit or shot if those guys didn't do what, what they do. Um, the grips are responsible for um, getting everything in place and figuring out how to get the camera where the camera needs to go, how to lay any track that needs to be laid, how to basically uh, uh, get get everything where it needs to be and solve a million and one problems. Yeah, uh, all the rigging, that. Uh, rigging cameras on cars. Um, yeah, moving into locations and making sure that the gear that we need is there when it's needed. And, and, and that even, I mean, it is so much more involved in that because both of these guys are filmmakers. And with the gaffers, gaffer and his department, the electrics department, they figure out, uh, they work very closely with the cinematographer to light everything. They are the ones who hook up all the lights, regulate all the lights, deal with all the lights and everything having to do with electric on the the whole show. Yeah. And they, they work very closely together because the the grips will 
put stuff in places and then the electric has to make the stuff uh, work. And and so like, these are the nuts and bolts of the job, which, you know, it's these are already complicated jobs, but these two guys in particular bring such a care and an artistic approach to it that they're really filmmakers yep. who are aiding the the director and the cinematographer. And it's amazing to watch how they bring that, you know, when Jay is setting the lighting, it's not like he just has them flicked on and and then just lets the DP do what he wants. They have these conferences where they talk about the mood that's being expressed, the best, the best tools to communicate it, you know, whether it's gelling a light or what kind of light, the quality of the light, the color, the intensity. Um, and, you know, George is there making that happen. If they need to cut off the direction of a light, he'll, he'll go up on a ladder himself, even though there's a whole host of people working under him that could do that. He wants to make sure that, you know, a flag's put in the right place or a cutter, you know, he, they're all guys the time take, people are t talking about what's impossible to do. And George Patsos and Jay Fortune are, are going, oh, no, 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 it's totally possible. And they're finding a way to execute the creative vision and then to, to improve the creative vision uh, by how they do things. You know, be in a place where someone will say, well, there's no way to get a light up high in this spot because you can't put a crane in this. And George will look at Jay and they'll go off in a corner <laughs> and kind of talk to each other. And they'll come back and they'll go, we know how to do it. And yeah. suddenly, yeah, suddenly you exact, the light is the exact height you need and it's the exact light that you want. And it's those two guys figuring out with their teams yeah. and they're, uh, they're how to get this done. Hilarious and unflappable and it's great having them. And then a, a, a counterpart of theirs in physical production, as we're talking about physical production, is a co-EP on the show who's the line producer and who has been for the last couple of seasons. That's April Taylor. And April worked her way up. She was a unit production manager in the first season and has worked her way up to now basically running physical, all physical production yeah. for us. So she does everything from crunching the numbers on the budget end to making sure that all the departments are getting what they need. You know, she needs to sort of look at the script and be part of the triage process to understand what's the most important part of the story we're trying to tell and how to divert the resources to that. You know, who can, which department can do with a little less or is going to need creative thinking. Um, and she works hand in hand with George and Jay, making sure that they have what they need to deliver. And she's tireless and she's a terrier working to make sure that the best version of the show gets shot and put on screen. Perfectly said, perfectly said. April is an invaluable partner of ours and has, that is a very, very difficult job. And, um, it, the pressure on that position is extraordinary. And um, she really rises to the challenge. And it's, uh, it, listen, any, any, any executive producer, uh, showrunner who says it's always a joy uh, dealing with the parts of the job the line producer has to deal with because the line producer is the kind of person who also has to say, basically the only person who ever has to try to say no to us. So that's not an easy thing to have to do. Yes, the line producer is wedged between the exec producers and the studio and the studio, you know, wants a good show, but they also always want to save money if it's possible. And and April is really gifted at knowing what's important, coming to us with real solutions when um, the appetite we have is too big. And sometimes we say, well, we're going to eat that meal anyway and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> and sometimes uh, we... Uh, uh, pass on it, but she's, uh, truly an extraordinary help to us. So, uh, we want to shout her out on this, uh, mid season finale episode of behind the billiards. A lot of references, a lot of guest cast. Let's just talk about, should we, some should we blaze people. into it? Let's I do mean, it, man. Miles Davis, Spanish keys playing in the opening dinner, which is hilarious. I mean, we both dabbled listening to Miles Davis at various points of our lives. We're talking about Jackson Pollock. I mean, we talked about him when we were kids wondering uh, I'm, about I'm what so art angry. was. I'm so angry at ourselves for not yet putting that one line in. I'm not even going to say it now because I want to hold it. But Save the it. fact that we haven't said the line in this show yet is that we, I mean, literally one of the biggest things we said to each other the last 20 years has to do with him and we have not put it in the show. It's a crime, <laughs> Dave. It's a yeah. gosh darn crime. 
Then Chuck mentions your Billie Eilish to the young law students, which is hilarious. There, there, there's this, yes, the Billie Eilish reference. Yeah. Uh, he says, he also says um, when he's talking about uh, trying to take out Krakow, take dead aim, which is like a backdoor Harvey Penick reference. <laughs> the great golf instructor. It sure is. We got here, a coach here. Belichick. We got a Taron Brown, Shane, the Warriors, wag the dog, the last great mammoth. If you're wondering if Merle, if we call the guy Merle because of The Godfather 2, don't wonder if you're listening <laughs> to this podcast and have watched the show. I think you know why the guy's named Merle. There's a Tom Cruise reference, A Few Good Men, Itu Mama Tambien, a movie that was so magical to us that, well, not exactly as Taylor says. I, I only saw it once. Did you ever see it again? No, I didn't want to. I, I want never, the memory of yeah. that movie to be exactly what it is for me. I don't want to break the magic spell of that movie by feeling differently about it and watching it now. And that's so Taylor says that Taylor had slightly different reasons. That movie and um, Amelie are two movies that are so perfect in my memory for in a certain way that although I normally watch movies um, over and over again, uh, you know, I didn't want to. I'm so glad we got Crystal in there, which is not only a, I want to be. I think you and I should just be clear that that is not only a reference to a few good men. It is also a reference to a few good scouts. Yep. People should find that on YouTube. A few good scouts from, from the old Ben Stiller comedy sketch show. High comedy. It's a, it is. It's a little shout out to the Ben Stiller show fans uh, as well. And then the episode closes with a, a heavy going to the mattresses riff um, that gives way to a Metallica hardwired riff. Two uh, elements very close to the heart of the show. Very deeply, uh, deeply baked into the show. But also, Dave, we can't just run past our Magnum Force reference because <laughs> the things that have to really have to do with the two of us, I mean, if you and I didn't, when we met at 14 and 16 years old, if we talked about Clint Eastwood movies for a day, we talked about them for four years nonstop. And there's a reason that they're mentioned in Rounders, everybody drink, and um, why... <laughs> Uh, we brought Magnum Force back up. And Magnum Force has things in it that have stayed. That that movie had a huge, weird influence uh, on us. I think in in lots of different, lots of different ways. Even for me, even more than 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 Dirty Harry. It's so heavy and violent, and corrupt, and wrong. It's just wrong on so many levels, and um, and actually relevant right now. It's, it's always stayed relevant somehow, and it's it's even more relevant right now. But it's just a weird counterpoint to an E2 Mama Tambien first half. Wags really does a mashup there in a special yeah, Wags-like way. They're not, really, they're not really the same. Um, and then, <laughs> uh, of course, uh, Midsummer, which I still haven't seen, but I trust you. Thank you. Yes, you don't want to be Midsummered. No, I know that, and I know As, enough about the movie. It might be the only movie reference ever in the history of the show that I don't know the movie personally, but I just don't like those kind of movies, and I, I can't bring myself to watch it. I, I watched it alone and laughed and was horrified and scared and delighted. and You know, it was gruesome. And, and then I have to shout out the reference of uh, Busted. If you don't know that record by Ray Charles, go get it. That is one of the greatest three and a half minutes in the history of popular music. It is, uh, I remember hearing it at 12 and it had that Harold Bloom strangeness. I was 12 years old. I found that record. I put it on and I remember just being completely shaken up by, just totally shook by what I could barely comprehend as a 12 year old. And I went and listened to it again today, Dave, and it still just fucks you up. It's so goddamn great. Busted. Ray Charles, go listen to that track. Okay, you sold some Ray Charles. Now, how did uh, Maria Sharapova get back into this episode and back into the show suddenly in this episode? Well, uh, what do you mean, how? I mean, you know, that's a left field kind of a pull, right? Well, well, the idea was like, wasn't I mean, Axe says, Axe at the end of 506 says, uh, you know, you, Tanner, he says it to Wendy, I'll bring someone. He doesn't mention Wags, who he brought in as backup somehow in between. Maybe I'll bring someone, he said. And this is who yeah. he brought. Well, it just seemed that uh, 
who's Axe really going to date? Who's he going to have as a date <laughs> and try to sort of show Wendy in his own way that um, he's not that easily sort of um, intimidated or played or any of that stuff. And so he brings, and I got, and, I, and, and I'm really glad you brought Maria up. I mean, what a professional she is. She just totally delivers. Well, it's amazing. You know, she doesn't, um, she's not a formally trained actor like all these other people. And that was a very long scene to shoot because of all yeah. the angles. It took all night, but you know, she showed no signs of fatigue. She was sharp during every take, even for all the other people's off camera stuff. She nailed all her lines. She had a total understanding of what was going on. And it was like, literally, I believe the day after she denounced her retirement. Yeah. And I will say when she walks onto a set, people are on their best behavior. She has enough. She is one of those athletic leader kind of people. Like you're just like, yep, that's, that's, that's alpha, fe alpha female. Is that a term? It should, it should alpha it person. Should. She's just an alpha human. Yeah, she's an alpha, but, um, but also very kind and nice. Yep. Great to us on the show. Scott Cohn came back as Pete Decker. We, we've loved this guy since the first season. We've always, we'd always wanted to work with him up until then. And anytime we can wrap him back into the story. Anytime we can justify day. Pete Decker being on the show, Pete Decker's on the show. Um, and then his cohort on this, who is, is the incomparable Rick Hoffman as Dr. Swerdlow from Suits. Um, we could talk about that a little bit more when uh, Costable's we'll on. We'll talk about it with Costi, together. Yeah. But I do want to say um, from the moment I know from the moment I saw that guy on Suits, I was like, I got to get this guy on the show. And I showed him to you and you were like, yep, let's get him on the show. But then uh, we'll bring this up to Costi. I mean, then uh, we didn't think of him for the role because I honestly, I didn't think he'd come do it or whatever. And then Dave brought it up. Costi did. And you and I immediately were like, go get him. Go get Rick Hoffman to come do the show. Let's do it. And then the second he showed up, we started hanging out with him. We grew up six minutes away from him. We mm -hmm. grew up with all the same people. And um, I think we're man, a little bit older than him though. Deliver. Maybe three years older. Yeah. But your wife was like in his, well, I guess she was in his high school. They went to high school. Yeah. Wild, wild stuff. Danny Strong came back and just put on a tour de force performance as, in, as in does. this episode. Man, that was entertaining. Um, and then some real sort of cameo players, Mary Giuliani. The Mary who I've known for a long time. And, chef and, caterer and, personality in New York. And you know, a regular on the Rachel Ray show, and and mm -hmm. yeah, she she was fantastic on on the show. And then at the, uh, go ahead, keep going. CC Sabathia, Yankees legend. That was super cool. Um, yeah, that was a wild uh, a wild day. I, I got to podcast uh, on the moment with him, and then have him uh, come out for the. And, and you just blast. recently done part of my take, right? Well, yeah, and then I, yeah, I just done part of my take and, and PFT commenter came out. Then he's the one who's hanging with, <laughs> with CeCe. Uh, and, and it's great. He hasn't told anybody. So when the show airs, I mean, Big Cat knows, but that's it. It's going to be awesome. His, his, his audience is going to freak out, uh, we think. That's and then great. a quick shout out to our old friend, uh, Allison Canders, who was in that scene too, who's uh, notable in the uh, art world. Oh yeah, it was great having Allison on. She belongs in the Billions universe. And then um, Mark Lazary came back. He's been in, is it this three is episodes? Four? Two or three episodes, uh, but has been an in, uh, just a, not just invaluable, I mean, essential to the conceiving of and writing of various episodes and storylines on the show. A huge help to the two of us. Owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. And he is rolling in that scene with David Solomon, the head of Goldman Sachs, also known as... DJ D. Sal, an actual legitimate um, DJ. Yeah, DJ and, and he makes tracks. Yeah, and uh, great, you know, a, a great presence on set, great presence uh, on the show. I've been lucky enough; we both have to spend some time with David, and he's a fascinating person. Who, um, man, nobody knows this world like uh, David Solomon, and I'm so glad that he watches the show and that he wanted. Uh, you know, was willing to come and lend some uh, credibility to this <laughs> endeavor. Because we, we were trying to figure out who would be at this kind of an art show. And it would be people like Cece Sabathia. And it's people who have the kind of money that they could just spend it on art. Uh, and it would be people like David Solomon and, and Mark Lazary and Allison Canders. And that's just what that world 
of the show. Yeah, these is people like. really populated the, the the kind of people that Axe would want to show his new artist to, so that they regarded the new artist potentially bought his work in the future, thus driving up the value of what Axe owned. And uh, and a, a great legendary New York trader, Richard A. Game Anthony, was there too, and he's another guy who buys art and and. Uh, He's a, a notable uh, a card player and uh, bumpy Vaughn around town. And I was glad that uh, A-Game got to uh, show up. Yeah, it was great. And I remember um, people on the production asking us if we wanted to pack the room with um, regular background players, you know, um, people acting, but pretending they were there as guests of Axis. And we were like, no, he doesn't need to fill the room. He needs to have the people in the room be the, these recognizable people who are the right people. Um, it's not a mass event. It's a curated event that Axe put together. Exactly right. And uh, no, it was uh, I, just a, a great turnout, great, great setting. And um, anything else do you think we ought to cover before getting Costi in here? No, I mean, you know, Costi totally understood the vibe of that night and shot it well. Killed it as a director. All right, let, let's, uh, let's get him in here. Well, Levine, this is, I mean, I think I've heard you say it to me, actually, like basically any minute you get to spend with Dave Costable is a better minute than the minute before Dave Costable. A hundred percent. It's a, it's a plus, it's a life plus minute. The, the fact that there were years after we'd known and worked with Costi that we didn't get to play with him and hang around with him on a daily basis, it, it, uh, my voice sounds slightly, I know, like uh, I'm fucking around because to say this <laughs> earnestly, to, so, to say it earnestly feels a little bit sappy, but I earnestly mean it. Costi, you know, we love you. And um, thanks for joining Me us you. on the behind on the behind the billions. Happy to be here. And congratulations, Dave. I think actual applause on this guy pulling off what wow. he did. Directing. Thank you. Directing the episode. First time. First time director. Yeah. First time. Well, I mean, you know, why don't we start yeah. there? Like, mm. well, you have directed theater. Yeah. But yeah. directing TV, why, why directing TV? What made you want to do this after all That's, these shows you've done and all the years of billions? I think one of the, you know, one of the things that really interested me, and I said this from the very beginning when I asked you guys in season two, whether it would be possible. Um, and when Brian said like, yeah, you can direct in season five, I was like, oh, great. Terrific. That'll never happen. Wait, um, you still, but, I, see, that's not fair. When have I literally ever said anything to you <laughs> that didn't come true? I know, but I did, you know, I'm a, I'm a cynical optimist, not an optimistic cynic. It smacks of a fob off because yeah. there's no guarantees you're getting a season five. Yeah, and... exactly. I mean, at that point we had just started season two. You're like, yeah, how about season five? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. How about season five? Wouldn't that be great if we got to season five? Yes, but before you answer, we can we can fill in some background here, which is it's not like you just hung around and and sort of hoped or nagged us or something. You you put in the work. You, well, no, and you guys you shadowed really like, you shadowed the full episodes. Yes, sure. You got you said you got a shadow twice, and I was like, sure, that seemed interesting to me too. And I, and I think just sort of gen generally, you know, it, I I never really had an ambition to. Uh, go out and become a director like a gun for hire. I, my interest in it primarily was when when you have a long collaboration, like we, you, you, the three of us had already had a long collaboration, and the idea that then you could be in a larger, longer collaboration with crew members and other cast members and the writers, not just you guys, but the, but all of the writing that you had done collectively over those many seasons, it seemed more, it seems, and it still seems more interesting to me as a, as somebody, uh, what the value that I could add to that was only from being on the inside rather than coming from the outside and being like, Hey, how about this? Or how about this? It seemed much more exciting to me um, from a process point of view to, to be able to be able to be inside of it so deeply to know it and to never really have to question question where the writers wanted to go so it wasn't it wasn't like oh maybe the writers i don't know maybe they like this uh that seemed very interesting and then and then from a performative standpoint it seemed it, it seems so much easier to walk into a room with paul or damien or maggie or asia or anybody and even even guests that we had and and come from a place uh from a secure place of 
I know where you're starting. And I know where I know where you are even in the length of the process of this long story that we're telling. And that it was the best case scenario. And on some level, it was the best case scenario and to even have the length of time from when I started shadowing to when I could direct that, that there wasn't any. Um, that wasn't what made me nervous. It didn't it didn't fill me with the anxiety that I wouldn't know. How to, how to attack it or how to even begin to ask a question. And even when I got pushback from anybody, even from you guys, it, seemed, it made sense in terms of the whole picture about, the, about all five years and about the long novel and even the long, even for us between the three of us, the longer discussion of collaborate, whatever collaborative place that we've started from and the history that we have. So it, it just, it, it seemed... And and that still seems true. So somebody was asking me the other day, like, well, do, does that make you want to do more? And you'd be like, to the extent that I could have this kind of situation, it does. So if there were any number of, of pieces that you would want to make, if there were an, enough people that you were in a long-term conversation with, then yeah. Um, yeah, to carry that forward. Well, I mean, season 10 is right around the corner. <laughs> and I think it comes back around again sure, and it'll that be makes, perfect. Totally makes sense. Have, some five, have five years off. You'll yeah. step right right back in. Really think, think about yeah. it again. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, you were totally comfortable um, with the cast. They're close friends of yours. They're your peers. You've worked with them for years. You are an accomplished actor. You're a trained actor. So that the performance part was not... Um, an aspect of this that we ever had any concerns about, but I would love to hear like what was harder than you expected when it was time to do this. If you take that part out. Um, I think the, the stuff that was the, the speed, the speed with which you're making decisions, um, yeah. the speed with which you guys are also making decisions, the, the, the difference between, uh, having a conversation with you as a producer versus having a conversation with you as a writer or even as a writer who is sort of asking you about performance or put, you know, moving you towards some idea about it in performance. Um, that was, it was hard. It was hard because I, I don't, I didn't, I, I, you know, I'm obviously not accomplished in that world and it's, and that was, that was challenging for sure. Um, there were there were definitely times when there was a there was a couple of you know there was a there was a, some, some moments of the fog of war which were very very foggy and challenging whereas i think accomplished directors don't get that foggy i think that i, I was just like i, I it, it happened on the very first day it happened on the very last day uh like strangely. like a like a an exhaustion of nervous energy that stopped but, you from being able also, to see it clearly or something but also just like you're trying to t like in the moment when you're you're actually trying to hold the whole picture as opposed to be like you can't hold but, like but give uh, up in fairness to you but costi in fairness to you the last day the first day for every director is hell the first day dave and i ever directed we luckily had an insurance day and like no one's ever seen our first day of shooting. We threw it out. <laughs> That's true. Dave Levine, that is there, a true story. There was a problem at the lab and it turned out to be a great break for us. It was we amazing. We reshot everything on our you first can't, day. That can't be true. It was an actual lab problem or you were just yeah. like, burn that, burn that shit. And like, I don't want it. I don't want to see it. There was a matte box light, light leak. And Yes, we then leaned heavy into it to get everybody to agree to make it an insurance day. But I mean- Yeah, there was a moment when they were like, well, we could fix some of this in post and divert the insurance money to that. And we were like, why don't we just do it again? Yeah, right. we just flushed our first day ever as director. <laughs> for, for real, 20 <laughs> years ago. We had to, because the first day is so scary. But the last day, Dave, here's what you're dealing with. A production that was going to shut down for, for COVID within 24 hours. Uh yeah. 50 visit 50 or 60 uh background players in a small area um some touchy moments uh around sort of where characters and actors were going uh major guest stars major pieces uh billionaires on set who we had to manage for uh, friends that we had to get shots of because of where their status is in that world I mean, it was a lot to manage on your last night, and I think and, it was the art that and acting, and then certainly, yeah, and then acting scene, and the and the first day because we had the added aspect of the drug, 
that there was a whole another, it was not just a single, it wasn't just a straight down the line, just shoot, shoot the show and do what you know how to do. That we were, you, you guys were finding out what it, what it was in, in, in real time and you were seeing it and responding to it immediately and then being like, okay, how, how is this going to manifest? Because it had so many more ramifications for the rest of the episode. How, how is everybody going to get on this particular page about what the drug taking is going to look like and how it's going to manifest? And, um, and that was its own challenge. But as I said, to, I said, I, at one point I looked at Giorgio and I said, or George or somebody. And I was like, I was like, does it, I was like, it goes so fast. Why does it go so fast? Because you also just, you know, when you're in it, when you're in the rehearsal of, you know, there are enough people where you're like, okay, he, I can, I can take in everybody. There are 15 people here. I can take in everything that everybody's doing. And then all of a sudden the rest of the crew show up and you've got a hundred people and you're just like, your head is just spinning. You can't believe it. And all of a sudden it's just happening. And, and it's just yes. like, no, getting calm. Nobody. But you got, you had a great command climate that you set. You were really wonderful with uh, the actors. I want to talk to you a little bit about you and, and WAGs. We've, we've, there've been a couple of panels we've done where we've discussed this very briefly, but I was thinking this morning about your whole involvement in the show. And, and as you know, we called you and we said, we want you to play this part, Wags. You have to come audition, but you're the only person who's going to audition. We're going to make sure it's you. You came in, you did the audition, but the character was a quiet character. We had a totally different idea. And then between the pilot, between us, when we watched the pilot, we cut your, the, the big scene that was going to intro you and Damien got cut. And so that we decided to introduce acts a different way. Then your part was very small in the pilot, and which we ne we knew we were going to start changing the character, so we made it small so it wouldn't he wouldn't make too big an impression. You made the change beautifully, but I wonder, were you freaked out at all? Like when we had that lunch and we said, "Hey, the character has to go 180. You have to become this guy Wags in a totally different way." Was it? Did it freak you out at all? No. <laughs> Why? It didn't. So most freak people this. would freak out. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that I knew that you knew that I could do it. So, and I knew that you knew that I could do it. You, nobody but you guys ever would have cast me in that role. Nobody, 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 nobody. There's no way I've never played, you know, I've played bad guys before, but I'd never played somebody who was so outside of the box and so aggressive and so cruel and just like such an animal. And you guys were just like, that guy can do it. Like you knew that my sort of sublimated rage would be able to come and just, and then when you started to write it and how you guys started to develop it, because you guys didn't know either. It wasn't like you had planned it. You had written an entire, entirely different dynamic yes. between two central characters that was yes, going to the, affect the whole scope of the whole fucking deal. And the, yeah, the like, original, the original conception was that Wags was much more toned down um, sort of in contrast to an ax who was like fiery and running all over the place. But then Damien sort of brings this cold, controlled kind of a stalking panther kind of a vibe. And we were like, oh, okay, this is so clear now. Wags has to be the id of the place, the un yeah. unrestrained part. And, you know, people who watch closely may notice that, that in between episodes one and two, you know, you go from clean shaven and sort of like um, button down, like sweater kind of a vibe yeah. to the goatee with like the little devilish twist up on the mustache yeah. and you know, like the, the the slick shirts and blazer kind of vibe. Yeah. And you know, just, just from a process point of view, that's, you know, I, I have been trained to become a transformational actor. The whole idea is that you're supposed to transform. So do it, transform, change. And that is, you know, I think people look at, you know, my career or the roles that I have played. And they're like, you play so many different characters and be like, well, right. That's because people write so many different characters and the whole point of the job for me. And there are many other actors who don't, who are, that isn't their thing or that they, it's a much more personality driven thing, or it's a much, it's, it's, it is a much closer that they value that particular thing less. But for me, that's the whole gig. So when you guys were like transform change and I was like, 
hooray, yippee. Yeah. So in the first episode, you're you're like a whispering consigliere in that moment at the basketball game. And the second episode is is like uh, the Catherine the Great and maybe yeah, some sort of like yeah. vile, vile nun comments and yeah. you're just busting loose, right? And I remember the very first day we shot on the second episode, the, the first moment when I started to feel it and I was like, oh, that's it, that's it. Ah, uh, <laughs> you knew, do, you knew. Do you, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but but uh, it was when Lewis, when Kenshelmi gets fired, right? Right. And, oh, yeah. you know, that guy's a monster. He's incredible. That's Victor, like, the guy who plays Victor. And he's just, just from a kinesthetic place, he's just got like, so much going on and he yeah. and he had a line where he's like that's bullshit right he gets fired and he's that bullshit he steps toward axe and my act my, the, what i what i decided i just started to move towards him i was like fuck you dude like let's go you and me right now <laughs> and i was like that's crazy first of all that guy could kill me he could kick right. my ass and i was just like i was like it didn't matter it that was totally immaterial to that character that he would die or, you know, lose a limb or an ear or something. He was just like, let's go. You, if you, you just said that's bullshit in front of everybody. And now I know the only thing I want to do is run towards that fire. And and then I was like, oh, yeah, there we go. That's yeah. it. The guy's just going to run towards the fire. This. You were not going to let the guy get to your feudal lord. No way. It's out of the and question. Happy, and happy to do it. Not yeah. afraid. And for me... In my life, my David's personal life, would never do that. No, <laughs> Walk towards some guy and be like, that's bullshit. Like, ah, get away. I'm sorry. Sorry. But it felt so exciting to do that. And I guess to that end, that was the that was really the moment when I knew that that you guys knew that whatever wherever it was gonna lie inside of me was gonna be what you what you were, were hoping for. We had never a doubt. So that then when so that when you guys started to see it, you were like, yeah, yeah. And then you wrote, then you ran way ahead and started me chasing you to get to that place when you just started writing insane, appalling shit that I have to say. Well, we <laughs> saw I will say that's one of the delights of this for us. Is like, you know, but that first season only we're the only people who saw it. Right, yeah. we're just in our editing room, and we knew you were gonna pop. Like we knew Wags was gonna pop huge. Yeah. And once or twice, our great partners at Showtime, who are always great, and that they always end up, they defer. That you know, we're like, are we really gonna do this? This is this gonna be this big? This guy? And we were just like, oh, you haven't seen this is this is the toned down version. Wait, just give us <laughs> wait till episode five. What we're gonna write for a minute? You know, it wasn't about your performance; it was about the whole idea of sure. wags. You know, sure. are we really gonna put this character um, in this way? He's really gonna say that thing about the horse cock, like, and we're like, yeah. oh no, no, yeah, he's gonna say <laughs> yeah. it like really say it so loud. He's gonna yeah. say it loudly because we felt it represented, and, and I'm sure you felt this way. How do you feel? Like we knew that you were actually doing what those guys on the street were thinking uh yeah. they you were at they they in their private moments want to be that and they've told you that i mean what does that feel like when you walk on the floor of the stock exchange they go fucking crazy man i'm because wondering all those because the majority of the guys the guys who are our age live that way they used to live that way for real so you see it light up in their eyes right you see like oh i used to live like that oh, i want it back i can't why can't i get it back and you're like it's never coming back, baby. Like you shouldn't have lived that way. And frankly, yeah, it was bad wow. to live that way on every wow. level. Yeah. yeah. But you see it just, they just light up when they see me. And I, and that was like, people say, well, what research did you be like? This, you don't have to do that much research. You feel it. You feel, you walk into the room. I see those guys. I shook their hands back when shaking hands was possible. And you know, they were just like, it just comes, it comes out of them. It just lives on the surface and they just, they yearn for that life. And then all of the younger guys know that, know that that was a, a real possibility because they, they've sat around and heard those stories from all the dinosaurs. So all the yeah, they missed it. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, missed they missed all it. the fun. Yeah. So they, so they have this yearning and this, this such deeply held desire that if only we could be with that guy, if only wags were here, like, we could, couldn't we do that? He seems to do it. Like, let's do it. And, but, but to get back to the longer conversation. So, so, so one of the things that's so, it's so, um, it's, it gives you such a, it's such a great feeling is to have that kind of collaborative trust where you, where you can rely on somebody. So I knew that in getting into a directing place, you guys would have been like, you're, 
and and we did have those conversations where you're like, no, turn the turn left. You're turning right, turn left. And I was like, I disagreed, but I was like, turn left, dude, turn left. Like we we know because because it wasn't about like, oh, I you know, I I'm right, you're wrong. It's like the hell with that. Like let's continue to try to have this long conversation about how do we how do we tell the story? And you don't know because we, you proved it. You didn't know, and then all of a sudden you're just like, just change it change it and you changed it and it was so interesting and continues to be so valuable to, to the whole story. Well, you got to be think, open to that. You have yeah. to in our job and in actors jobs too. You, you you have to be open to seeing what it is and finding it over and over. I mean, Dave and I always say we found it in the fourth episode and then then once you understand the tone, you just have then and it's like okay, everything that serves this tone is in right. and anything that's outside of the bounds of this tone before we do that, we have to really understand what that's going to do to the overall right. tone of the of the piece. And you know, we cut um, a segment out of this episode because, as serving as a mid season finale, it tonally was just out of where we needed it, even though it was really entertaining. And those are hard things for us to do because everyone's worked hard, actors have worked hard, but our and we loved it and we wrote the shit. Us and Emily right. wrote it, but we're going to cut it if it doesn't serve the thing where the thing is going, we're going to just leave it on the floor. We have right. to, that's the discipline in a way, you know? Yeah. And, and I think don't actors get used to that. Cause you'll do, if you do three different versions of something, two of those versions are just, they're gone forever. Sure. Sure. And that's part of the, you know, that, that aspect is part of the fun. When you, when you lose something that is, that is, you know, whole cloth that that's disappointing because it's, and there's been plenty of that I've lost where I'm just like, oh, shit, I really love that thing. And I really wanted it when I read it because, you know, the promise of it, you guys give us the promise. And then if we don't fulfill the promise or if the promise just doesn't fit, you're like, you wish you wish that it did. I mean, you know, Whether it's always even, just our fault. It's always just my and Dave's fault. A hundred percent. It's nobody no, else's it's fault. It's our fault. fault. It, has to do, it has to do with choices and it has to do with what you what you see and what you want. And and. That also is part of what the collab, that's, that's part of the agreement and it's a good agreement and it, it, it but it definitely comes with loss, which well, yeah, that, that is part, was of the, the thing. part of the game. It is part of the game. No, those feelings. I mean, I, yeah, sometimes there's no other party to do it. You just have to do it yourself. I mean, Dave and I've just been in that situation so many times we've, we've written, edited, shot a thing and then have to be like, oh fuck, we got to cut that whole five minutes. I mean, once we had to cut the owner of Rayo's out of which was just a terrible thing to have to do for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Uh, having nothing to do with his, you know, performance and, and just meant we couldn't go to Rayo's for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but and he uh, did how great. Is, He's a fine he was, actor. He did great. Frankie was amazing. Yeah. How, rest in peace. He was we, a wonderful man. Frank we Pellino, put it, we put it greats. in the wrong place and it was stopping the movie from mm. flowing and we had to do it. We had no choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we had no choice. Uh, Costi, how has WAGS changed either changed your life and also has it opened up people's minds to you doing different kinds of roles uh uh i think i mean it'll be really interesting to see when the show's over if 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 that is in fact true um you know most people most most casting uh People who anybody who's making that decision are, are usually chasing the last thing that you did, um, which is never very interesting. Um, so, you know, it, it will be very interesting to see uh, wh whether that is true or not. There hasn't been a lot of, there hasn't been any any sort of like wags pretenders that have come down the pike since this is no, started. It's true, and and uh, and what about the general sort of how this experience has changed? your your life if it has i mean yeah yeah it's changed it there's i've never um i i don't think i've ever i've certainly never had the kind of security security in terms of performance to know that um you can you're coming back to a role to a world really having a long to, to really creating it's certainly in television you do in theater all the time that you create like a family uh, atmosphere. You you live in a world where you know people. You 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 start with their kids and and. But here, because we've been doing it for so long, it's an incredible gift to be able to 
feel as comfortable as you do walking into this room of people, the crew and, and people that you really care about and really know. Um, that's rare. It's been rare in my life. I've never, I've never really had it. So this isn't, it's, you know, you're, you're a gun for hire. You walk in, you feel like it's the first day of school. You feel like a jerk. Nobody really talks to you. You sit alone at lunch. Just, you're like, ugh, this is awful. Like I do this every, I do this every job I get. I just feel like a jackass walking in and, and I leave and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? But here it's, you know, you walk in and you know, everybody, you know, the, the, you're, the people who drive you, the people who make your breakfast, the people who are helping you with your costumes and your hair and makeup. And it's incredible. Well, yeah, you know, as when you came to direct, you could feel the crew and the cast pulling for you to do well and doing everything yeah. they could to support it, which is a testament to the way you conduct yourself as an actor. You don't go around barking at them or taking yeah. out whatever mood you're in on them. I mean, but that also comes so it came back That's to you in a great way. But that also starts with you guys. You know, I've said this before. I've said this to you privately, and I'll say it publicly, as public as this is. But, you know, you you guys have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy because as, you know, as the head of human resources for our small company, um, just making sure that you don't have any bad eggs. And when you get one, you just let them go. And you're just like, there's no room for it because there's no room for it, especially because you guys have so many other things to do and you know how destructive and... Um, diminishing that can be for a whole crew of people who are working so hard to make what you have written, um, that there can be no room. And we just don't have it there. There just aren't bad eggs. So people treat each other with respect and care. And that you demand that just because you choose those people. And those people keep coming back because they want to be in that atmosphere. And there's no room for it. There's, I mean, there's no room for it just professionally, but there's definitely no room when you're doing a really high stakes, pressurized, difficult job that the, the crew has. There's no way. Yes, and then Costi, we have to thank you for bringing Rick Hoffman aboard. Our Come on, show. that's yeah. good casting. Well, you know, a great job <laughs> directorially helping cast the role. I mean, we had the idea, you had the so relationship, satisfying. you were able to make the contact and you know, it was great is Costi, we had the idea to bring Rick Hoffman on the show, Dave, but not for this role. And it was Costi who said to us, what about Rick Hoffman? Then the second he said it, I was like, oh my God, we've been dying to have that dude on the show. That's brilliant, Costi. And then you wrote him a letter and we all wrote him letters. I mean, everyone yeah. got him. And, and boy, did he deliver. I mean, he just delivered. He? He it's just, strong, isn't it? It's so good. <laughs> he is just, I mean, that baby guy, girl. I mean, baby girl. I mean, I mean that baby is- girl? No, that's Maybe just girl. phenomenal. Well, you know, as you know, <laughs> we don't let strong. anyone add even one word. And I think he added four I know, words in that scene. I know. And we're me. just like more. And I told more. him that. I told him that when he came, before he came, I was like, dude, you got to know it. Word, perfect. Don't change shit. Can't do it. No space, nothing. And he was like, really? And I was like, yep, really. And he was like, okay. And he still came and he was still just like, fuck that. I'm doing it. I was like, wow. Interesting. <laughs> We um, loved it. I mean, we made it work. And I was like, how come he gets to add words? He's really good at it, Costi. He is. Nobody gets to do I it. We shut everybody one down. Word a year. Every year I try to add one word. and I, It's I, really not what you do. It's just not. It's not really what you do. It's not true. In the beginning, I tried to add whole sentences. And then I narrowed it, pared it down. Last season, one word. Couldn't get it in. One word, an adverb, couldn't get but it in. Was that word ba was that word baby doll or baby girl? I don't think it <laughs> no, was. No, but if you want me to do that shit, I would happily. Are you can no. you, you want more? No, no, <laughs> we don't. Give, is there more? Is there more? Yeah, there's always more. More please, is more. Please, no, as, Rick as Hoffman. As young Damien would say. So, so for four years, it was only Dan Soder was the only person who was ever ever allowed to do that. Uh, Ava. Uh -huh. Ava, Ava can yeah. do it because Ava's a great writer. Uh -huh. So if Ava has a, a line, uh, and then and then uh, Rick Hoffman. You should, but 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 Rick counts on, on your account because you brought him in. So that <laughs> yeah. that's on your right. account. That's great nice. point. Great right, point. Dave. Absolutely. Right. Fair enough. That means I got four words in all year. I love it. As written, David Costable, dude, what a joy. What a fucking joy it is to get to work with you uh, the way that we do and to be your friend for such a long time. And uh, it's the way I feel about you guys. You just make everybody, you made everybody, you make everybody on set happier and feel understood and listened to and heard and all that stuff. And, and uh, you're a huge asset for us. So thank it. you. Thank you. All right. Well, great seeing you, man. Thanks great for coming and doing this. Too. See you on set for episode eight. Can't uh, wait. Soon. All right, everybody. Thanks for uh, listening to Behind the Billions. We are 
uh, we're going to go down uh, after this episode. Behind the Billions will, will uh, we hope that Behind the Billions will return when Billions returns, uh, if all things work out in, in the world. Thanks for listening along with us uh, for these seven episodes. I'll tell you, we have written episodes eight to 12, and they really kick ass. Levine, this has been fun doing this with you, and the reaction to it's been great. It's been a delight. Thank you guys for coming along and listening. Appreciate it. it. Hope we're back. If you want to find me, if you want to find me on a podcast, find The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Both these fine gentlemen have been on that podcast. And we will be back uh, someday on The Ringer as well. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.